0: This is Cindy Linott, Kira Finkenberg, Addie Ann Tarleton, Whitney Bond, Amy Miller, John Holiday, Marcy Allen, Paula Palazzo, Becca Leifer, and you're listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. And I'm on Promoter 101.
1: It's time for everybody's favorite podcast, Promoter 101. Mike count has us on Chapter 51 of our ongoing saga. I'm Dan Steinberg, joined by Luke Pierce. Welcome, Luke. Hello, friend. We've got a barn burner this week. We
2: have legendary road god SRO consultants Mike McGinley, a.k.a. The Goon. Plus, we've got Paradigm's Jason Kupperman. This week's War Stories comes to us from Denver Argus concert security icon Mike Fruitman, plus News of the Week. Hi, it's Phil Ernst from Madison Square
3: Garden, and this is Promoters 101.
1: It's always great to hear from our listeners. And never more so than in person on a live Promoter 101 podcast recording. And you can catch us coming to your town soon.
2: Boston. We're going to be coming on October 12th. And we got the goods Paradigms, Todd Walker, and the Bowery Presents, Josh Bonney, plus three questions live with Roxanne, Dan's Millen. And we're all going to be there for a live recording of Promoter 101 at the Berklee College of Music's Popular Institute.
1: Very excited. That's just three weeks out. Can't wait. Nashville, Monday, October sixteenth. It's going to be our one-year anniversary show, and we're doing it live from the IEBA conference. And you wanted him; you asked for him. We went and got him for you. Stylin' and profiling, limousine ridin', jet flyin', kiss stealin', wheelin', dealin'. Son of a gun, the Rick Flair of the concert business. Live Nation's co-president of North American concerts, Bob Rue. Of
2: course, very excited to be interviewing Bob on that stage. IEBA is a fantastic conference. If you haven't checked it out, ieba.org. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Stani is at The Jew. The show is at Promoters 101. That's promoters, plural. And I'm at W. Luke Pierce.
1: Do you feel that the conversation's one-sided? Luke and I are always the ones talking, and you're just listening? It doesn't have to be that way. We're ready to listen to you. Send us an email with your ideas, thoughts, comments, personal suggestion about grooming. We don't care. We're waiting to hear from you. We want to know what's on your mind. And we promise, we swear, we'll respond to every inquiry, and usually in a very timely manner, because we care about you deeply. For the record, I actually don't
2: want to hear your fashion advice, but I do want to hear what you think about everything else on this podcast. So be sure to send those emails to steiny at promoter101.net. You haven't already? Make sure you subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you podcast and help spread the word. Tell your friends, write us a review on iTunes, drop us a note if you've got the moment. And if you've missed
1: any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at promoter101.net. This week, we're featuring a reissue of episode 10, recording executive turned artist manager Mark Katz, known for his work with Mission to Burma and MGMT. He shares his thoughts and some serious music history. This guy is a music gamer. He is badass. Plus, we're going to break down the news of the week, and if you haven't heard it, it's new to you. This is Bob Rue with Live Nation, and I'm on Promoter 101. We want to jump right in with the news of the week. Phil Ernst has left Madison Square Garden after a shakeup this week. You know,
2: I'm hearing that there's some rumblings over at MSG. There's some you know, new folks that are you know, more in line with Dolan's over there, and there's some new people that are running strategy on that side of things. I
1: don't think this is going to be the last end of it. What have you heard, Dan? Actually, I did talk to Phil this week. We, we had excitingly recorded a spot with him for an upcoming episode, and we decided that maybe we're going to hold off on that and record a new interview with Phil once he's got a new job in the industry, which I'm sure he's going to wind up somewhere amazing because he's one of the biggest minds in this industry. I'm shocked that he's no longer there. He's been there for seven plus years. He's been an executive all over the U.S. and Mexico. He's one of the greater minds of our industry. I'm sure he's going to wind up somewhere big very soon. You don't get to that
2: role by not being good in the first place, right? You know, GM of such a, a crazy, huge trafficked room. He's He's got skill sets that are to transfer somewhere. I'm excited to see where he lands next, and of course, get him back on Promoter 101, maybe get some insight on it.
1: I just love his sayings. He's the first person to ever say to me, "When don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And uh, it has stuck with me to this day. Anytime I hear that, I think of the great Phil Ernst.
2: Some more moving and shaking throughout the industry, Dan. I think this is going to become a theme for the news of this week. Dave Brooks at Amplify, our buddy, broke the news that Leslie Olnick is going to exit Golden Voice for Live Nation. This is an exclusive On Amplify Magazine this week, Leslie Olnick has left Golden Voice. She's going to accept a position at Live Nation as the company's vice president for touring, Billboard has learned. The former VP of Talent Buying for theaters and arenas had worked with Golden Voice for nearly 10 years, had had her hands in a bunch of amazing projects was you know billboard 40 under 40 power player this is a big move for leslie she is an absolute rock star i mean from Tyler of the craters camp flognaught to her work in the electronic world she's been a rock star there at golden voice for a very long time and this is a big hit this is a big move for her have you any thoughts on this dan
1: We do a lot of work with Golden Voice and with the guys at Live Nation in actuality. I was a little shocked to see the jump because in all actuality, the turnover at Golden Voice is very low. People love working for Paul Tillett. And it's just a shock anytime somebody leaves that golden world of amazing placement. I mean, there's not really a better place if you're working in the corporate world than to get to work for the land of Coachella.
2: Yeah, I agree. I'm excited to see what she can do. I mean, obviously, this is a company that, like it or not, when you compare it to Golden Voice, has some incredible horsepower, and she's going to bring a lot of relationships with her along to Live Nation, and those artists are going to have access to those resources at Live Nation. I think that's a very big pitch, a very big draw, on her personal connections to, like I mentioned, Tyler, the creator, who I think wrote her blurb under the Billboard 40 Under 40, is one of those people that might be coming along with. This could be some interesting shakeups in the business side of things.
1: Some other people are doing some moving and shaking right now. Amplify broke the news that the Cervante guys in Denver, Adam and Scott, have joined the AEG Presents Rocky Mountain team. That's a huge addition to that team of Donnie, Chuck, and Brent. Amazing news.
2: And as we record this podcast on Saturday afternoon, we've just learned the passing of Charles Bradley. It's a shocking news. He had been battling stomach cancer, been on and off the road during his treatments for the last couple years. Obviously an incredible story, The Soul of America, an amazing documentary about a musician that found a second life after 60 on Daptone Records, and just an incredible performer. Rick Farrell from ICM Partners took me to see Charles at the Roxy some time ago. It was absolutely incredible, and I've been lucky enough to see him a few times down the road, very sad about his passing. Definitely gonna be listening to some of his records today.
1: That really points out how great of an artist he is, is when you've got agents that don't represent or work with the act in any way whatsoever, dragging their friends to see him, just huge fans of music because he's a huge talent. And that just shows the loss that has been created this week in the industry. He'll be missed. Also, in other sad news, RIP, we lost one of the great marketing minds in the history of sports entertainment, Bobby the Brain Heenan. He played an amazing bad guy. He was magic on the mic, and he was always entertaining. Bobby had been struggling with his health for some time. This is a great loss, and he'll be missed.
2: Pulsar is reporting that Rival Entertainment Lucy Lawler-Frias has signed on for another role in the industry as the new director of programming at Atlanta's Fox Theater. Lucy was already doing a great deal of business through Rival at Atlanta's Fox Theater. Now she's running the show over there. Congrats to Lucy.
1: I talked to Lucy earlier. She's still going to be involved with Rival. So this is an amazing step. So she's going to be balancing both worlds. And uh, I think she can handle it. But kind of putting her on the top of the rock and roll royalty concert world in Atlanta. Well done, Lucy.
2: I mean, rock star. She got an Adele date, you know. It's pretty incredible what she's doing down there in Atlanta. She is one of the biggest names in that part of the country.
1: Finally, I want to take a moment to shine a spotlight on the Director of Office of Culture and Affairs for the City of Las Vegas, Allie Hamblin. She is a role model to all who know her and always smiling, making her this week's Promoter 101 Badass of the Week. Congrats goes out to you, Allie. Well deserved.
0: Hello, this is Sarah Mertz, Rick Barrow, Nick Light, Mark Geiger. This is Lee Anderson, <laughs> Kevin Lyman, John Good Jim Rungi, Jeff White, Brian Zisk, Chuck Randall, Brian O'Connell, Zandria Johnson, Adam Possum, Darielle Hyatt, Ben Men, Jamie Miller, Billy Wayne Davis, Brandon Frankel, Miss <laughs> LaFont, Jake Gould,
1: Gary Smith, Jeff Cohen. You are on Promoter 101.
0: Promoter 101.
2: In our featured interview this week, we're joined by the man known to many of the industry as the goon. That's SRO Consultants Mike McGinley. This is a story you're going to want to grab some popcorn and stop what you're doing. It's an absolute thriller.
1: Promoter 101, we're at the Sunset Marquee, and I'm joined with an icon, Mike McKinley, (laughs) a.k.a. The Goon. Okay, I got to ask right from the get-go, the nickname.
3: You know, when I was in college at the University of Montana, after I graduated, when I was in college, the students got control of all their activity monies, right? They took it all the way from the athletic department, and they were doing concerts, they were doing intramural sports, they were doing a free daycare, free legal services, and they hired me to, for the four years I was in college, or the three years I was in college, they budgeted the money, but the administration, the university administration would control all the money, right? And they'd mess with them, and you can't spend it on this, and you can't spend it on that. So the year I was graduating, the students actually said, we're gonna hire our own guy, and I passed a CPA exam when I was still in college, right? So we're gonna hire us our own guy, to manage this money ourselves. So they hired me, (laughs) shockingly, right? They hired me, you know, and there were still rules, right? This is all state money, right? So those rules, so the students would wanna do all this crazy stuff and I'd have to say no, right? And a perfect example of that is they wanted to do Marcel Marceau, okay? I grew up in Deer Lodge, Montana. There was one radio station. I had no idea who he was, right? Not a clue, right? So the program director, David Schneider, who just retired. Agent
1: William Morris, agent David Schneider? William Morris,
3: David Schneider was my college roommate, okay? It's shocking. Huh? <laughs> shocking. It's anyway. a
1: lot of like rock and roll history in one dorm room.
3: I know. Anyway, so, and we actually we were living in Max Bacchus' house, who was the senator from Montana for 40 years. He just retired a couple of years ago and now he's the ambassador to China, right? So anyway, he wanted to do Marcel Marceau and I said, We don't have the money, you're not gonna do it. He went and found the money and I went to see it and it, you know, changes your life, right? He was amazing. But so anyway, I became the no guy, right? For all this all this cuckoo stuff that the students wanted to do. And the name started as Mr. Magoo, right? <laughs> And then it very quickly changed to. I can just say this: that fucking goon, right? <laughs> so love that's it. that's kind of where it started back at the University of Montana.
1: And it's one of those nicknames that like not only stick, but it's a badge of honor. People that know you as the goon are people that love you.
3: Well, and then you know, I get my first job, and trying to be polite, as you know, and when, when it all started back then, when I started, promoters were making fifteen percent of the gross, and agencies were making ten percent of the artist fee, right? And, I miss those days. Yeah, you miss me. You know, I think you can thank me partly for that and Elliot Roberts. I or, will not thank you. <laughs> anyway, so we literally... The
1: size of my house is affected by not being able to thank you. <laughs> not that anybody's hurting for me, and they, nor should they. Yeah,
3: exactly. Anyway, so with, you know, standing behind Elliot Roberts and, and Dimitri and some really strong managers, and there's a lot of promoters that would still probably shiver to think that, oh, here comes the goon, right? But I would go out and just thought I really kind of Negotiate all the deals, tonight a show, right?
1: You're a rep for that, yeah.
3: <laughs> and it was, and
1: let's talk about the hit list because you work for sure. some amazingly big bands. Let's give me the list. Well, your and, favorites.
3: It's hard. My favorites. I mean, Pearl
1: Jam, right? It's got to be up there.
3: You know, yeah, Pearl Jam was great, but way before that, right? Back when rock and roll was really rock and roll, right? I mean, obviously, the first long tour that I did with Styx. And then I did early Cars Tours and Super Tramp and Tom Petty. And you know, you could go on and on and on, but probably the thing- So
1: basically the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs>
3: it's police you know, Sting. But at the end of one tour, I read Mark McCormick's book. I don't know if you knew Mark McCormick was, he started IMG. He was Arnold Palmer's roommate in college. And one the of golfer. the- The golfer and started the biggest sports agency in the world right and one of the first things he did or he wrote a book and i read the book on a plane flying around on tour and the first thing he did was when he started managing or working with arnold is he ran over to england opened up an office and made arnold go play the british open to build a worldwide business and i literally got on a plane two weeks later went over to london bought a house and established a presence in England because a lot of the bands were coming from England to the United States, and it gave us a presence in England, and then they weren't just, for to somebody to handle their money, they just weren't hiring that guy from America. They were hiring a guy that actually had a presence in England.
1: But you you see, you had to be spending some time over there at the same time, right? You just I did spend some time, there. But
3: what I did is... Terrible place to hang, too. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't get me started on that. But anyway, the next thing I did is I was, you know, I'd done a tour of Supertramp. I did Super. My first European tour was Supertramp, and I'll try to make it short on some of the craziest stories. But obviously, they were overselling a lot of venues. We started clicking, but it was painful in settlement because you couldn't read anything. What do you mean? Well, you, everything's in German or French or Spanish. You couldn't you read, decipher it. You <laughs> couldn't read anything. You just, so I said, "You know, so I'm not coming back over here until I bring somebody with me that can actually read all this shit." Right. So my plan was to go to the Ivy League schools. Go to the master's programs, hire master students, okay? Hire the brightest guys I could find and put them on the road. So I went to New York, set up shop, and started interviewing all these Harvard, Penn, Columbia MBAs. And keep in mind, these are guys that think they're going to be running General Motors in three years, right? So after interviewing about 10 of these guys, I went, fuck, if I put this guy, any of these guys on the road, the riggers are going to have him hanging naked from this the roof. This is like 1978? Yeah, about early 80s, right? But I was thinking the riggers are going to have these guys hanging naked from the roof in a week, right? This is not going to work. So I bailed on that idea. And as I was getting ready to leave New York, this guy called me and he was a undergrad at Penn. He had just graduated. His girlfriend worked at the graduate school and he saw my job posting, right? And he called me up and he said, I really want this job. And I think I could do a good job. I'm not a graduate assistant. And I said, fuck it. I'll meet you at Wolf's Deli. Get on the train. I'll meet you at Wolf's Deli. In two hours, and let's have a chat. That guy was Jonathan Kessler. <laughs> that was Jonathan Kessler. And I wish I had a picture. I showed up cut off in cutoffs and flip-flops and uh, torn he up. He was t- probably
1: in a suit, right?
3: <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, he, he shows up in corduroy pants that are too short. A shirt that's too short and a clip-on tie. He clearly borrowed clothes to come to this interview, right?
1: I'm envisioning a Gene Wilder scene here.
3: It was hysterical. He didn't really impress me right away. He's very quiet, but he spoke two foreign languages. And I said, you're my guy. He spoke French and Spanish because he grew up in Europe, right? Parents grew up in uh, Geneva. So the first tour we nailed was Depeche Mode. And I was talking to JD and they called him Junior, right? And they finally called him and said, okay, you can bring Junior on the road, but the band can't see him. Right, you got to hide him. Hide him backstage, hide him in your room. We don't care what you do, but the band can't see Junior, okay? So we go to Boston. We do the first show. I, I'm hiding Kessler in my room. I'm hiding him backstage. You know, he's getting started. And I go back to the hotel, and I grew up in Montana with my uncle, and my uncle died. You know, I called JD. I go, I'm going to the airport.
1: Family's got to come first.
3: Family's come first, right? So I settled the Philadelphia show the next night with Payne. I had no idea what Kessler was doing. I left him and I said, figure it out, right? Fly to Philly, do whatever you're doing, right? He figured it out. I settled the show the next night with Sid Payne on the phone. And two days later was DC. So I get back to DC and Kessler's driving the band van.
1: (laughs) How'd that play?
3: (laughs) No, I mean, he somehow worked in two days, somehow worked his way in, right?
1: There's some love.
3: There's some love. And I'll save you the rest of the long story, but you all know where that one ended up, right?
1: He did pretty good for himself.
3: He did pretty good for himself. And he's doing a great job. I talked to him last week. It's their biggest tour ever, ever. The band's bigger than ever.
1: You gotta love those moments. Rock and roll will prevail.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: So you've gotten to jump around the industry quite a bit and you've got a reputation for not being someone that can be fucked over at Settlement. You know how to settle a show. (laughs) It's like you and Stuart Ross, no one's getting anything over. Like industry legend precedes you both. You know, like those are the guys not to come with it and try and get away with anything.
3: You know, I guess my only comment to that would be preparation, right? Just know your shit, know everything and prepare. And if you show up you know, at six o'clock or even day of show and try to sort stuff out, you're probably not going to make get much traction. But I could tell you one story that back in the day when we were at Pine Knob and I saw my first ever dollar service charge and I wasn't quite sure what it was, but they said it was a city tax. All right. So the next show, two days later, we're at Hoffman Estates which was both Niederlander venues, right? And that's Chicago, right? That's Chicago, yeah, they sold it to Sears, right? They sold those the property are the to Sears. the first
1: amphitheater in Illinois. First
3: amphitheater in, in Chicago, right? 25,000 seats, first 25,000 seat amphitheater, I think. Maybe. You had
1: to pick a moment where Jam fucked up, it was because they let Niederlander open the amphitheater in their market.
3: No comment, maybe maybe passing on Sillerman's money would have been a bigger moment, but that's another, that's another story. Love you, Jerry. So anyway, there was this service charge and they were saying it was a city tax. So the next day we got to Chicago a day earlier, and I drove down to the City Hall in Hoffman Estates, right? And wanted to do some research on this new ticket You can ta- just
1: take it as, as the, as the this new, answer?
3: This new ticket tax, right? <laughs> and as we all know-
1: 25,000 tickets, that adds up.
3: It went from a dollar a ticket. It was not a tax. It went from a dollar a ticket. And the reality is they were just trying to keep money away from guys like me. That's really what it is. Did that work? Service charges are now what?
1: In the short term, did that work?
3: Well, I don't don't want to talk about clients' money, but let's (laughs) just say there was a long, loud conversation that night.
1: (laughs) All right. We could talk about rock and roll for a long time because you're an icon in the field. I want to skip ahead for a second. You somehow knew that social media was going to be a thing before the rest of the world.
3: Here's what I can tell you. 20 years ago, I do not know. I was done. I walked into Sting's dress room and said, dude, I'm going home. I'm done saratoga springs um i didn't want to travel anymore they all laughed said you'll be back you'll be back you'll be back as we all know i didn't go back and don't miss it a bit right but
1: you're here to announce you're coming back right
3: yeah i'm here to announce i'm good no can't remember the last time i settled the show but anyway so i came back and i was going to start this little
1: for the record you did offer to settle for me tonight
3: i did i did offer to settle for you, your brian wilson show tonight yeah I might be kind of rusty, but I haven't prepared, so <laughs> I'm sure you're prepared. Anyway, I um, spent a couple of years kicking around. I had my guys on the road, so I was making money, and met a guy who introduced me to some people at DirecTV. I'll kind of keep this story short. And they, you know, it was a brand new, very thin layers of management. And I met their um, a younger guy that was working for programming there. And you know me, I just started hustling him. I invited him backstage to some shows and, you know, did the whole rock and roll thing and we became friends. And then I started pitching him on stuff, right? And he said, you know, I said, you guys should do a video channel, blah, 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 blah. And he looked at me, we're a distributor, we're not a programmer, da, 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 da. And then Miles Copeland called me. And it was a month before Sting Tour started and they didn't have a sponsor, like six weeks. And they didn't have a tour sponsor. And he said, do you know anybody who would sponsor this thing? And I went, maybe DirecTV. So I call up Goldberg and I said, how about this? And he said and they were just starting, right? They needed to build brand, they needed to get programmed, they needed all that stuff. Right time, right place. So that's a great idea. And the good news was in a company that small, like if you're at AT&T or something, you'd be talking to some director level guy and it would and take, it would take six, six months to, months to get the top, to the top. Yeah. I'm talking to the guys, two guys, Jim Ramo and Steve St. who are running the place. One's an EVP and the other is SVP of sales and marketing. right? The guys that can say yes. We had a decision in a week, a week, right? So now I've got this little consulting company and you know we did uh, we did that we did a Shania Twain stuff we did some stuff with the Rolling Stones and about a year later this is in March '99 okay everything's changing the world's changing but I'm just doing my little consulting thing Ed Hughes who had a program at Directv who I'd met in that whole process of working with Goldberg and all the executives at Directv called me up and he said hey Mike how you doing I said great he said uh, I've left Directv I thought maybe he got fired right but no no. He had gone to work for a company, a brand new startup in San Diego called Interview. Do you know what Akamai is? I don't. Akamai is a big web infrastructure company. They serve you know, audio and video all over the web, right? Huge Content? Account. Content, yeah. It's, it's a streaming company, right? Got it. They host and serve for big companies, right? And this company was a competitor to them. Akamai, all that stuff was just starting. Akamai was the industry leader. I think it's still the largest first day IPO on Wall Street everyone when Akamai went public. But anyway, Ed called me up. He said, Hey, I I need your help. I'd like you to come down Tuesday to meet our chairman. We need you to set up meetings at the record companies in the studios for us. I said, I can do that. So I drove down, I met Ed. We had a great meeting. I said I can do this. He said we can't pay you a lot of money, but we can give you some options. I had no idea what they were. But I was just gonna help the guy, right? And then he said I need you to come back on Tuesday to talk to my team. I go back down on Tuesday. I'm in a meeting for just over an hour with all these engineers, okay? For one hour, I sat there and they might as well have been speaking Chinese. I didn't understand one thing they said. And I went back to Ed and I said, Ed, I love you, I don't think I'm your guy. I didn't understand one thing those guys said. He said, don't worry, Mike, don't worry. I mean, we just need you to set up the meetings, okay? We're gonna bring our team, all right? We got this covered, okay? So for one year till March 00, I ran around and sat in these meetings. And I'm a good listener, right? And I learned about this thing called the internet. Okay? Not from
1: AOL, but before the AOL commercials, right? This is like early.
3: Even better. So in March, oh oh, and I don't know if you remember what happened in March, oh but it's the first major. It was the web crash, massive, massive stock market crash. Third week of March, okay. Uh, third week of March. The first week of March, Akamai comes in and takes out interview for two point four billion dollars. Those options that I didn't quite know what they were. Guess what? They're worth. <laughs> some real money, right? So, thank you, God. even better, I was a consultant. I had to sell my stock right away, right? Because I wasn't an employee. So they said, you know, you gotta sell your stock. Two days before the crash, I sold the stock.
1: So you were the only one that got paid out. Because everybody else's stock was restricted, right?
3: Some guys got out, some guys didn't. I'm not exactly sure the terms wasn't really my thing, but I was out, right?
1: Right, fuck everybody else, I know I got paid.
3: Now I had a little bit of money and I had this attorney in Silicon Valley, right? Because I didn't want to use the LA law firms, right? Hank Berry. Hank Berry calls me up, my attorney, from Wilson Censini. And he said, Mike, I've left Wilson Censini. All these guys keep believing on me, right? And he went to Hummer Windblatt, which is a venture capital firm up there. And he said, we've just made our first investment. It's Napster. And I just wanted to let you know. And we're doing this thing. And Napster was just starting. I'd heard about it, but really didn't know much about it. And I said, well, that's cool. I'm, you know, I'm fine with that. And he gave me another guy. And then, so about a month later, he called me up again. And he said, I know he made a little bit of money in that interview deal. Do you want to invest alongside of us in Napster? And they're on with us. And I said, sure, why not? So everybody told me I was crazy. Everybody told me don't do it. You kind of know me a little bit. If everybody's going right, I'm going left, okay?
1: And gets you into business with Sean Parker, although you probably didn't know it was Sean Parker at that moment. Or I didn't, he was.
3: didn't know anything, but I knew Sean Fanning because I'd read about him in the newspaper. So the first thing Hank and Milt did is they said, we think you can help these guys, why don't you come up here, we'll hire you as a consultant, we'll pay a little bit of money and maybe you can help these guys. So I went up there and met Parker and Fanning the first day. And after a few days, I realized that Sean Parker was Frederick Nietzsche. He's one of these guys that's so smart, he can't manage his brain, right? Just crazy, crazy smart. These guys see stuff that nobody else ever sees, right? Keep in mind, I worked with Nicholas and Yanis from Kazaa. I was the first American to talk to them when they came over here, when Kazaa started. But all those early file sharing guys, they thought, they they had a vision that there'd be a social core of the web, okay? That the web would be very, very social. And they thought music would be the core and the driver of that social core of the web, okay?
1: They weren't completely wrong.
3: No, you know, Natal, the Kazagas, Nicholas and started with, cause, you know, anyway. And that's what Parker's vision was, right? And then they realized that you couldn't scale the licensing. Parker went from there to Plaxo. He brought me along as an advisor for Plaxo.
1: Online digital Rolodex.
3: Yeah, exactly. And he got in a thing with the VCs there and left there. And then he was kind of sleeping on couches. And kind of hanging out, not really knowing what he was going to do with his life. And he and I kind of hung out a little bit more. And then he saw what Zuckerberg was doing at Stanford, not Harvard. And uh, realized that this could be his social core. Keep in mind, I don't know, 30 to 35% of all web traffic touches Facebook or Instagram every day. And so he realized this could be his social core. And he met Mark, started working with him. And the first person that he introduced to Mark after he met him was... Mike McGinley so the name sounds familiar yeah so I know so I was there and I say this all the time thank God Mark didn't take any of my advice but I was there watching what these guys were building when it was just a handful of people
1: so what was the advice that you gave him that you're glad he didn't take
3: you know I don't want to get they did some MTV meetings and some other stuff I don't want to get too much into that but Mark had a vision and Sean had a vision right And they had a lot of people, a lot of, you know, the Frestons, the Simmels, all these people thought that they had a better vision, right? And Mark was not deterred. He had a vision. Keep in mind, and this is all public, but Terry Simmel from Yahoo offered him $1 billion cash to buy Facebook early on, and Mark just called him back the next day, and he said, we're building something here. We're not finished. Kind of the same as Evan at Snapchat. He's building something. There's some real resolve there.
1: Yeah, do you know
3: how many people they could pass on a billion dollars? I couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: haven't.
3: I haven't had a boss since
1: I worked at Subway in the 15th grade, (laughs) sophomore year, right? I I wouldn't pass on that offer. Let me ask you this: You've seen social media, obviously. I've heard from a lot of friends that that know those guys. The movie got it wrong that Sorkin was being Sorkin, and, and it was a good movie. But Sean Parker made Facebook happen. That if Sean Parker hadn't met. Zuckerberg, it wouldn't have played out the way it did. Knowing those guys and seeing how it played out, do you think that Sean should have gotten more credit for how that played out?
3: It was a partnership. Mark Zuckerberg has... I'm not taking anything away from Mark. No, no, I get it, no. You needed both of their qualities, okay, to build what they were building. You know, Chris Cox came along, there's a lot of brilliant people that came along, take Facebook where it was at. I mean, keep in mind, Facebook at Harvard was a dating service, right? It was just to communicate with kids on campus, right?
1: If Zuckerberg had not met Sean, would Facebook be Facebook? Would it have gotten there eventually?
3: It's a tough call, but I I would say it was a great partnership, it worked.
1: Okay, I'm not gonna push on you, it seems like that, okay, I'm hitting close to home. Let's jump back to music for a second, because you've never lost your flair for music, and you're still completely connected to the industry. You've been gone, but you're not. You still interact with a huge part of it, and it's, it's really close to your core. And whenever I see you, there's always music people between you or me somewhere in the conversation. It's very rare that you and me are in the same room by ourselves, but there's always someone like else in the room, and it, they always have to do with music. They're not internet people. So you're very much still attached to your roots.
3: It's hard to leave your roots, you know? I mean, that's what we do, and that's ultimately what I know.
1: Okay, so your vision of the industry, I find interesting because you... Left, but you, you still stay in touch. One of my favorite things was. On your social media feed was McCartney playing Missoula. Yes, you went in for the show, and you could see there was a real sense of pride of like him playing your college stadium that you were going to be there. There was no way you were missing that.
3: Well, keep in mind, I spent seven years talking to Barry and Terry to get Paul to go to Missoula. You know, I went to school there, and I helped the. So you're pretty
1: comfortable in saying that show might not have happened.
3: I think Barry would definitely tell you that. Barry Marshall, Barry Marshall, right? Would definitely tell you the only reason we're here is Mike McGinley kept bugging me. <laughs>
1: Paul McCartney played Missoula to get you to shut the fuck up.
3: <laughs> well <laughs> I know Paul would see it that way, but somehow Barry talked him into it. It was a, good, a great show. It was amazing.
1: I don't know that anything else has ever played that stadium, right? Like that. Oh no.
3: Pearl Jam twice, Rolling Stones played that stadium.
1: So that was a real concert market at one point that they could support that level.
3: Uh the Stones sold out in minutes. McCartney sold out in like minutes.
1: Because they've got Adams, which is the arena, but it's a small, small arena. It's five thousand seats. There's a theater in the market, the Wilma, but it's a pretty small theater, like 1100 cap or yeah. something, like GA. Yeah, that's your gig, yeah. The Denison is a seated theater on campus that's about the same 1100 tickets. Yeah.
3: But concert market-wise, limited resources. Yep, there's not real venues.
1: It's real easy to skip over that market. Yeah. And yet, the concert department at that college seems to be one of the strongest in the industry. It can be compared with San Diego.
3: All I can tell you is, keep in mind if you look at who's come out of that college. Right.
1: Well, obviously, David Schneider and you.
3: Clint Mitchell, working at William Morris. Kurt Motley, right? Keith Miller.
1: Was it, was it Kurt? It was not Kurt, right? It was the other guy from Paradigm that used to be at Paradigm.
3: Clint Mitchell. Ron Baird, who died a couple of years ago from Parkinson's, but out of Missoula. And he was a huge agent in Nashville. James,
1: is James like Yelich?
3: Uh, James Yelich. It wasn't Kurt. James it was James. Yulich. They were in the same office. There no, you and there's another one, Schneider. There's a couple of guys working for Don Fox that he hired doing a Pearl Jam show there.
1: Aaron Reynolds, who runs marketing for Emporium.
3: Aaron Reynolds, yeah. No, there's a long list. Katie, who's doing marketing at William Morris. Oh, really? Yeah. She works for Michelle at William Morris.
1: You have an amazing thing when you go to Polestar and you see the response of who's there from what college. Missoula has owned it the last couple of years. The point where Barbara Hubbard's like overseen by... Missoula instead of New Mexico for the first time of students attending.
3: There was a great program started there They have an entertainment management program that they started that I I actually go up there a couple of times a year and teach Right, and Keith goes up and teaches, you know, Brian Naft teaches
1: What do you tell them when you teach kids because obviously there's a finite amount of time that you have in front of them and An attention span thing at the same time. What are you trying to impress to them? Going into hopefully because three or four of these kids may actually make it into the industry
3: the Dean hates me Cause the first thing I tell all these kids in the business school is drop all your accounting classes. You're competing against $10 an hour in India. It's a waste of time. Um, the marketing that they're teaching in the building where we're at is antiquated, right? And they should be taking philosophy classes. They should be taking literature classes. They should be taking foreign languages, stuff like that. That's what I tell them. Interesting. And the other thing I tell them that's really important is follow your dream. This is America. If you really wanna be in the business when you graduate, the easiest path to be in the business is you gotta be in London, New York, Nashville, or LA. You can do it from anywhere else, but those are the easiest path to get in, okay? So just like David Schneider did, just like Mike McGinley did, we got in our cars from Missoula, Montana and drove to LA. I drove to LA, Schneider was already here, but walked up and down Sunset Boulevard looking for a job. Really? Yeah. I walked into the Galfand office on Sunset. This is funny. I walked in, Galfand, Rennert and Feldman had just merged with Breslauer. I walked in the front door on Sunset to give them my resume and I got lucky because I gave it to the receptionist and the head of HR was standing right there. And he grabbed the resume and as I walked out the front door he said, Mr. McGinley, have you passed the exam? And I said, yes, he said, I'd like to see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow in my office. And they just merged two firms, and it was getting bidding at a taxi, and they needed help, right? And when I went to the interview the next day, I mean, like the first few minutes of the interview was he was explaining to me how lucky I was to get around their formal recruiting process, and I kind of looked at him and went, "Dude, I walked in the front door." <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so that was my first gig,
1: and that paralleled into a pretty good career.
3: Schneider did the same thing, basically drove down. Uh, he was working with this crazy promoter called Art Newberger. That blew up right away, the guy was nuts. Then he just started, you know, same thing, just started calling people and working on stuff. And Frank Rio, who was at Triad then, was one of the real guys at Triad, Schneider had worked with him in Missoula, call him up one day and say, David, We're thinking about starting a college division. Would you come in and meet Peter and Richard? They hired him the next day.
1: He's gotta be one of the most down to earth people I've ever met. Yeah. We had the pleasure, and I was probably the last promoter that got to do the most amount of business with him because he was the RA for Paula Poundstone at the end of her career. So he decided I was going to be her national promoter. And it was put to me in a very interesting way that he had made this decision and this was going to be the, how it was. Huge fan, but yeah, different world. If you have tips for people that are going from being outsiders, trying to get in the industry, to how to get in the industry, is there anything you could recommend?
3: I go back to my experience at CitizenNet, right, where the world's changing dramatically, and how businesses are built and run moving forward is dramatically different than even how some of them are run today. Promoting is about picking the right talent, right? And then marketing, it's really the game. We were lucky to get a chance when I started CitizenNet. Live Nation basically turned all the Facebook advertising and Twitter advertising over to us. They were amazing in, in working through the good, the bad, and the ugly of starting a new platform, but they were kind of doing the same thing too, right? So we, we grew together, but he built it from the bottom up, basically started from scratch. And what a lot of companies are trying to do is they're trying to have the people that are in place today, the guys that are running marketing today, run all that stuff. And you got to build it from the bottom up. So my only response would be, if you want to be a promoter today, do it from the bottom up on your marketing. Uh, Radio doesn't exist. Print doesn't matter. Figure out how to run Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat. That's how you market shows today.
1: If you can, hire Jamie Loeb.
3: I love Jamie. She's got a Facebook guy that's really, really good, Jay. Some small guy couldn't hire Jamie, but you can find one of those kids at a college somewhere. Those are the next generation of of really good promoters. There's this guy called Jack Shannon, um, young kid, young college kid that is building a lot of cool stuff the new way. That would be my advice. Don't do it the old way.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time. Yes. The icon, the goon, Mike McGinley. (laughs) Promoter 101 coming to you from the Sunset Marquee. Thanks. I'm a fan of the goon and have been for years. I'm proud to call him a friend. He's one of the very smartest fucking people on the face of this planet, and you can see why.
2: Hey, it's Josh Boddy from The Bowery Presents, and I'm here on Promoter 101. Steiny, I want to jump into some of your tweets from the past week. Can you humor me and explain what was going on in your mind when you wrote each of these Promoter 101 tweets? Well, I'd be glad to, Luke. What do you got? When an agency sends a contract with a due
1: date of the next day, hashtag, yeah, right. Even more insulting, they actually called the next day to ask for the tracking number. It was like 18 contracts. Amazingly, though, we got them all turned around within 24 hours because we care. When an
2: agent calls and says, let's talk philosophy, quoted to Wayne Forte, hashtag promoter 101.
1: Love, Wayne, and that was a great tension breaker in the mix of confirming some deal points on a lot of dates, including uh, some Tedeschi trucks dates not far from your town, Luke. Does that mean we're going to see some TTB at the Ryman at some point? Well, we haven't announced the shows yet, so I can't say yes, but let's just say you're really hot.
2: Hey, we know the show is stiffing. The act doesn't want to give any relief, but we'd like you to paper the house.
1: This is always a call that makes me feel like I'm alone on an island somewhere. It sounds to a promoter's ears like, Hey, we really don't give a shit about you at all, but you better help us, or else. What's the else? Whenever anyone asks how sales
2: are, you're about to get hit up for adding something to the budget that was not part of the deal.
1: Yeah, we've all seen this one before. We get it. It's not a proof show expense. Sorry, dude.
2: When you really should have taken a personal day.
1: (laughs) Something I said to myself four or five times this week.
2: This is a great one. Managers are always perfect. It's the agent's fault, comma, obviously. Quoted to Seth Molaski, hashtag promoter 101.
1: You know, I figured you'd enjoy this since it's your agent. But uh, funnily, I feel like it's always the promoter's fault. So maybe we all find and feel like we're always responsible for everything.
2: When someone you truly respect fails to live up to your faith in them.
1: Yeah, I'm still disappointed about this one.
2: When everyone you come in contact to today is seemingly trying to be difficult.
1: Yeah, We've all had this day.
2: When an agent is trying to provoke me into an exchange to trigger a hashtag Promoter 101 post, yes, I get the irony of me making this post. He got his way. This one just amused me. It was fun. That does it for Promoter 101 Tweets of the Week. You can follow Dan on Twitter. He is at the Jew. And if you have your own Promoter 101 thoughts, feel free to tweet them at us or email them over. Anything that makes us smile is going to get used on the show. Hey, this is Sean Healy of Sean Healy Presents and WeBookBands.com. Happy to
4: be here on Promoter 101.
1: It's time for one of our new favorite segments, War Story. This week, we have a special war story from Colorado's Argus security, the icon, Mike Fruitman. Promoter 101, we got another great war story from security staff from Argus in Denver. Mike Fruitman's with us. Mike, what's your war story? So back
4: in 1990, the dead did a three-nighter back at mcnichols this is the actual grateful dead right not just the dead this is the grateful dead jerry's still with him and all all members are intact i remember two things about that show i remember you know i'm at the bottom of the aisle everybody's got me by a step but i'm six four and i'm you know basically eyeballing everybody and i'm taking tickets taking tickets you know, eyeball eyeball and then I'm, i look up and there's i'm looking pretty much at some guy's belly button or at least it feels like i am and i'm looking up and bill walton who i knew he was an announcer for the mavericks and there's <laughs> Bill at a dead show, and uh, hi, Bill, uh, on tour with the guys? Yeah, you know, checking out some cities. All right, man, well, you you just have a good night there and go about your way. And right after that, there's this guy, and before Denver became known for uh, being rather casual about pot use, there's a guy just smoking right out of a pipe. So I ask him for his pipe. And he passes to the next guy, and the next thing I know, it's eight people down in some pocket or a purse, or wherever. And I'm like, "Hey, man, just just give me back the pipe. You know, let's just get this over with." And he's rather smug because there's no evidence. And I'm like, "All right, well, I'm, you're acting kind of like a child, so I'm going to put you in timeout. So for five minutes, you get to sit here, and even if the music starts, you don't get to sing, you don't get to dance, you don't even get to mouth the words. You're in timeout. If you're going to act like a child, I will treat you like one." Said, so, and if you're not able to do that, you get a ten-minute timeout. Dude,
1: was this me? No, no. Well, I mean, let me
4: rephrase that. I don't remember it being you. So uh, he's, he's
1: wondering where you're going. I'm like, oh shit, I was at those shows. He gets to <laughs> about pretty stoned.
4: Guy gets to about four minutes and thirty seconds of the uh, first time out, and somebody taps him on the shoulder, and because he's not doing anything, the show hasn't started, but he's just kind of chilling. He goes, hey man, what's up? He goes, oh no, man, I'm on time. Oh crap! So he looks up. I'm like, all right, you got your ten. <laughs> so he's sitting there, and he's just kind of like. Not do anything. The show starts, of course, and he's just got to sit there. And I'm looking at my watch. We're at seven, eight, nine. I'm like, okay, man, you're free. And and you know, to his credit, he came up and said, you know what, you were really cool about this. I was kind of a jerk. I should have just given it to you. I apologize. And you didn't give me like one chance, but you, you actually gave me like three. So I really appreciate it. And uh, you know, I'm sorry I don't have a big Mongo story where I club somebody with my 3D old mag light, but uh, that that one uh, definitely stands out.
1: I get a Chuck story?
4: An Oompa story. There's a guy who had all sorts of nicknames and everything. Chuck story. I remember the one that comes to mind first is somebody did something not nice at Red Rocks. And we worked for different security companies. He worked for CSC and I worked for Midwest. We were the the local usher. And whenever Barry would do a show, he'd bring in CSC. So it was a good relationship, but not perfect relationship. So this guy gets brought in. I don't know what he did. Somebody's got an arm on the other side. The next thing I know, this guy is bolting out of the backstage door. I don't have a chance to turn around and get in on it, but uh, this guy is just running as his, his life depends on it, and he makes a mistake of not going down the south ramp. He tries to traverse the backstage road, which would tire any fitness guy running up or trying to walk up, and you can't run down that hill. Your inertia is just going to kill you. So the guy gets somehow as far down as he does, trips up, he's got road rash everywhere and Chuck is now bringing him up and and he's functional the guy's not gonna die he's just gonna have some war scars for a little bit and and Chuck has got him pressed against his body so tight that I'm sure he's just leaving some indent in Chuck's side and he's just squeezing him and I know the guy is screaming I am sure that the guy is yelling however I can't hear a damn thing because he's just pressed up so tight against Chuck that he's he's baffling the sound.
1: The world is a different place without Chuck Grant in it.
4: Yeah, and it's a different place now that everybody has a cell phone with a video camera in it.
1: Shay. Thank you so much, Mike. No, no. Thank you, Dan. So great to hear when we get
2: the extended parts of the industry, security, bus drivers, and show labor. They have the best stories. And Mike is clearly no exception. He's going to be on for a full interview in the upcoming weeks. Hi, this is Heath Miller.
1: Becca Leifer. Ed Mike Cohn. Derek Dimenstein.
0: Jason Kupperman. Jason Miller. John Schur.
1: Marsha Vlasic.
0: Mike Friedman. Ricardo Baco. Peter Schwartz. Nick Storch. I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. I'm on Promoter 101.
2: This week, we're joined by one of the hot agents from Paradigm, Mr. Jason Kupperman.
1: Promoter 101, we are at the Plaza Hotel, joined by Jason Coverman. Jason, welcome.
0: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
1: So we could start in a lot of different places, but I think it's timely. We got to ask the question, agent versus promoter.
0: (laughs) You know what? I had a feeling that was coming, and we were just talking about headshots. My very good friend, Joe Attaming, has quite the nice headshot. (laughs) Right. Let's see what you'd like to know. I might have to uh, plead the fifth in the fine words of Mr. David Chappelle. Did you know? I did know.
1: Okay. Is it possible that there was more than one agent?
0: I will say, because there's been a lot swirling around, that there was only one agent.
1: I want to talk about you and your career.
0: You are... Career. An- oh, my goodness.
1: Oh, we gotta use those <laughs> big words now, man. It's like your career has landed you at Paradigm, and you are in a very real office doing very real things with real acts. An absolute honor. I mean, Big Gigantic's been on an amazing run.
0: Yes, sir. I've represented Big Gigantic since 2010, so I think I just grayed a couple hairs by saying that. But uh, they're one of my first clients, and yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. They're two amazing human beings with a great manager, uh, Ben Baruch, who's doing a lot in the industry, and I think that we have learned a lot together and grown together but just an extremely versatile act and one of those acts that you can't not like it's just fun and it's just talent and it's really been a a big part of my success in this industry
1: now i've gotten to promote them in some very small rooms in the early days and you know it's like morgantown west virginia comes to mind and I've seen them grow into a Red Rocks act that not only has done it, but has done it multiple times now. Taking a band organically and finding them before it happens and developing in them into some of those bigger rooms. And I know it's not just Red Rocks. like They had some serious milestone plays and their businesses come way up over the span of their career and has maintained. As an agent, you, you have to build a team and a partnership of people that you really trust. How do you go about doing that? And do you feel that that was your success in the team and your partners on that?
0: Well, trust is definitely a trigger word. It starts with belief. And I think that I know I pride myself and my business on developing artists. A lot of the artists I represent are, are very organic. It's about the fan. It's about the live show. First and foremost, I'm a live band agent, my acts have to hack it live. And In terms of trust, you want to feel like everybody on the team is contributing equally and there's no finger pointing and it's let's work together to achieve the greatest success possible. And hopefully you feel that the artists that you represent have no limits.
1: Okay, so let's talk about your process. You work with a lot of younger bands
0: what's the process what does it take for you to get excited about a band so i'll be honest the process has changed significantly since i first became an agent i mean there are so many artists out there and so much competition that it's hard to find someone and really cultivate that relationship properly without somebody else coming along and expressing interest and a lot of the times you see teams coming on board extremely early, just to get their flag in the ground. When I first started out, it was really like, I need to keep coming back to this music. I need to see it a couple times. I need to know that once I come on board with an artist, I'm all in, and I give my all, because I'm an extremely passionate person. My time is limited. You know, I talk about this a bunch, with promoting, it's, Pretty obvious gambling because there's money involved. With being an agent, you're gambling your time and you're gambling your resources.
1: You're putting a lot more eggs in one basket too. As a promoter, I can take a shot on one or two nights. If you call me with an act, you're usually starting out early with them, so I'm risking a couple thousand dollars. But you're investing a, a year or more of your life when you take on an act, and a whole lot of time and money.
0: Yeah, oftentimes you're you go into an artist and. And I know for myself, I say, this is going to take me three to four years to get it to a place where it's starting to make money, where we can call this a career, where we can feel that the artist is able to make a living off of this. But until then, you need to lay the bricks. and You need to put the pieces in place. Nobody's making money then. That, that is time and that's resources and it's favors and it's phone calls and it's late nights and it's trips. All banking on the fact that one day, a couple of years down the line, all of this is gonna pay off. And, and there's a lot of risk involved. So who are the acts right now that you're investing in, your time and your energy, that you believe in, that you think it's going to happen? Sure. So you're never supposed to pick your favorite child.
1: Okay. Well, let's talk about all the acts that you're developing right now. You don't let's don't do them in any particular order. Just sure. What sure. I mean, anybody you signed, you must believe in. Absolutely. Because I know I could send you a CD of some band that I found and I like that you would probably listen to if I sent you something.
0: But you're not going to sign something just because I sent it to you. You'd have to love it. And I will say, whether good or bad, I'm very honest, and so if I hear something I'm not a fan of, there's not a level of disrespect, it's just that I don't feel it's a good fit for me, and I'll say it. It doesn't mean that I don't believe it. I've passed on acts that I knew were going to have a level of success. I got a hard time in the office the other day because there's a band that has a number one song that I flat out passed on, and I just didn't believe it had legs. And even with the number one song, I still don't believe it has legs. And and there's a
1: moment you don't think it's a career.
0: Correct. And as an agent, you need to think about where those revenue streams are coming from. Unfortunately, this is very much a business and this is a way that I support my family. So I could love an act to pieces, but it does need to have a career element to it because that's essentially what I'm doing. I'm building careers for my artists so they can succeed. but also so that me and my family can succeed. So here are a couple of bands. So I represent a band called City of the Sun, which is three members, two guitar players, and a cajon drummer. They are based here in New York City. They got their start busking. What's really fascinating is- Busking? Busking. So sit down in the park and just start playing. And just- Developed a very organic fan base as a Did result you discover
1: of- a band while you were running through Central so Park? So I
0: didn't discover them that way. We discovered them through a manager relationship. But what's really fascinating about them is they work in all different types of settings. We get inquiries for private events. We get inquiries for fashion events. They've opened up for Charles Bradley at the Beacon. They opened up for Thievery Corporation at Terminal 5. They toured with G-Love and Special Sauce. This is just one of those fascinating acts that we at Paradigm genuinely believe is going to break. We don't know how yet, but it's going to happen, and it's going to be an awesome moment. And they're three extremely talented guys, very humble, but often the barometer for what we do is measured on, are we going to be more successful doing this other than busking
1: musically who would be the perfect act for them to open with because you say the setup and i immediately think jason moraz
0: no so there are no lyrics it's more like work with explosions in the sky it could work with uh, Rodrigo, like we were listening to, uh, Bumba. so it's fairly artistic. Yes. It's okay. very artistic. It's really fascinating. Avant-garde? It's one of those, you have to see it. And that's one of the best parts is if that- you send us a clip, we'll post it on the site when we put up your interview. Oh, awesome. I mean, that's often the pitch. I find that's often a pitch with most of my bands is you got to see it. Watch this. I'm just going to send you the video. I could send you the numbers, but let me inspire you by you seeing it and hearing it, because I think that's the point of music, is to be inspired and to feel passion. I've got another band, uh, Ripe. They're all Berkeley kids, they're all classically trained. I've represented them for two years. They just sent me a happy anniversary email, and it's just one of those things where you want those people to win when they believe in you just as much as you believe in them. And it's not a lot of the extraneous what you think you get in the music industry with these guys. It's it's just thank yous and them putting their head down and constantly telling me that when they're in the studio, they're going to make best material they've ever made. And that's why I said, you do your job, and I'll do my job. And at the end of the day, when it's that way, it never really feels like a job.
1: Makes a lot of sense. Now, let's talk about the fact that you do work in one of the cooler agencies in the world. Yeah. And you're in the New York office, the flagship now, as it would be. Your feet from Marty Diamond. Matt Galley's feet away. Yeah. Like, you can walk into Seth's office anytime you want. Like, different resources and And I put Seth in that group because he Mulaski does a completely different part of the world than you do. So getting his input, like, would this work to an art center when you book something that has that artsy avant-garde vibe to it, too? Because Seth could be a big player for those guys with really big paydays in the long run. So all of those resources in one office has got to be a great thing because they all have different views of the world and do different things. And yet, what great resources?
0: So we really have embraced team. The concept of team and you don't find as often now that agents are signing on their own rather they're signing and putting pieces together for the artist i mean if you can build a group of people who contribute something unique to something and you see something in an artist and you think, oh, this agent has a really great knowledge base or great relationships in that field and would help them succeed. Why wouldn't you want that? You achieve success faster and you can achieve greater success. So that's one of the best pieces. When you asked me to do this, I I think one of the biggest pieces that I wanted to touch on was the background of my time at Paradigm. When I started Paradigm, it was not Paradigm. It was Monterey Peninsula Artists. Uh, I started in the Monterey office 11 years ago, having the absolute honor of working under the same roof as Chip Hooper and Dan Weiner, Fred Bolander, Jonathan John Levine. Levine and Swanson was probably there at that point too, right? Lynn? Lynn was there. Swanson was there, but he was leaving shortly thereafter. Hank was there. But it was also, I'm super proud of the group of people who came out of that office, you know, me, Jeffrey, Kelly Stelbaski, Joe Atamian, and Jordan Wallowitz, Latney Hughes, all Jerry Lima. In. So Jerry was, n- I, I think, he was at Monterey International by the time that I was at Monterey Peninsula. Oh, oh, right. But it was right down the road. The split it so, already happened. Right, so you can imagine that. It's Monterey, California, it's Carmel. Like, right, there's only so many people in the music industry are that age, yeah, and Scary's yes, awesome. Yeah, so we saw each other, and it was always very friendly. I mean, I was a 22-year-old kid. I would see them, I would spend time with them. It wasn't a, a lot of time, but, you know, especially at that time in my career, if you could call it a career, that was a time where I was... Working a lot. I was working or I was going to shows, but so I worked for Aaron Pincus for four years.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I knew that until recently. It was brought up the other night. Jordan now works for us in our Denver office and he had talked about the other assistants in the business that came up in front of him that helped him along his way. And apparently there's a club. If you worked for Pincus, there's (laughs) it's like being in a fraternity. There's a bond there that Aaron is legendarily a workhorse. And he expects a lot from his agents, but he trains, or his assistants, but he trains his assistants to become agents and become very successful in this business. And I
0: was going to touch on that. One of the things that really stuck with me that he said to me was, bands will come and go, but all we really have in this industry is our name, is our legacy. And that was something he really prided himself on, you know, when you say the word Pincus, you know, certainly it resonates, he's a powerful figure in the industry. But I really took that to heart. And now I operate the same way with the people who work for me. Uh, I pride myself in teaching. And I want them to get what they want out of being on my team. You know, if they strive to become an agent, I want them to ask questions. I want them to learn. It benefits me just as much as it benefits them. But the truth is, I'm fortunate to have a bunch of artists for five plus years, but they may decide they don't want to play music tomorrow, and then new artists will come along. But what I will have is the group of people who have worked with me and been able to learn from me. and. And I really pride myself on that. I take that really seriously.
1: It's an amazing thing that you got to come off that desk.
0: How do you get
1: that opportunity? Whether you know it or not, getting in the mailroom of CIA, getting to work on Pink is his desk, those are things that build to careers and how you get your foot in that door is, I think something that a lot of the younger listeners would probably really want to know.
0: Yes, yeah, so because it's got to be competitive as hell. So I was a student buyer at SUNY Binghamton, my junior and senior year. That essentially was my resume. I didn't have too many relationships. I worked with Concert Ideas as a middle buyer, but I hadn't interned at any record labels or, I knew I did not want to be at a record label. So to spend my summer doing that, it could have beefed up my resume and to younger listeners, I probably wouldn't encourage the same path that I took. I would probably say to try out new things because if anything, at that point, you're weeding out, at least you tried it. And now you know that you don't want to do that. But in my head, I knew I either wanted to be at a promotion company or I wanted to be at an agency and inevitably I decided I wanted to be close to the artist. I didn't want to be a manager cause God bless managers, but I already have two children and I knew that I just, loved the touring world. And I just wanted to cultivate careers through live music. So essentially, I interviewed here in New York at William Morris and CAA. Those were very entertaining interviews that we will not capture on Promoter 101. I would be very interested to know if any of those agents remember sitting in a room with me, but I certainly do. That'll be over a beer sometime. Mm-hmm. And then I applied to Monterey Peninsula artists. I told my parents I was moving to California. They were not particularly happy about that. There but, could be
1: worse hoods to move to.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's the typical question. Oh, you lived in L.A. It's like, no, I lived in Monterey, which. This on is an th-
1: easy seven and a half hour commute.
0: <laughs> yes. So. And abs- I didn't
1: understand it until I went, by the way. Yeah. And I had asked Fred and Dan separately before I'd ever visited. Why? And they said, come visit. Like just answer the question like we just did come visit and it took a few years but I finally went in to hang out as there were a ton of agents in that office and you get it immediately it's gorgeous for those of you that don't have to fly all the way to Monterey to get the
0: answer to that it is it's gorgeous Carmel Monterey Big Sur oh my god so I moved in with two fishermen completely blind off Craigslist and I would come home at midnight or whatever ungodly hour that I came home at two o'clock and there'd be a plate of fish sitting on the table, just a wonderful family. And then I moved in with a uh, Joe atamian Tamian and two other friends, two blocks from the water. I'd wake up in the morning. I'd go run along the Pacific ocean. I'd get in the office at eight 30. I'd leave at one and I would do it again the next day. And it was absolutely stunning. Pebble beach was our backyard. Um, but after a couple of years, I told Chip that it was an honor and I drank the Kool-Aid from day one, but I just couldn't be a kid anymore in Monterey, California. I needed more than just working. And I found myself, that's what I was doing. And my family was back in New York. I had the opportunity to come to the New York office and eventually work with Mac Alley, which also has been an absolute honor. And with Marty down the hall and now Tom,
1: Yeah, I mean, that office is stacked. I mean, Larry Webman, Kevin French. I mean, it goes for days. You start looking down the aisles of who works there.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. So just my style, oftentimes I get caught up in my own little world, and I go into the office, and I put my head down, and next thing I know, I pick my head back up, and it's 8 o'clock, and everyone's gone, and sometimes I feel I haven't exactly capitalized on the incredible opportunity that I have because there are just – extremely special people in the office who done things their own way if you know when you look at paradigm we are a collection of entrepreneurs and boutique agencies that have come together and have really meshed and i will say that when hopefully i have a long time left in this industry um, because that is the plan but when i reflect even now i know that working for monterey peninsula artists and working for paradigm is an honor that a lot of people most people will not get to have. And it's something that I absolutely do not take lightly. I love as an agency,
1: what's happened from the second the spinoff happened and how it's been built. Cause I, I obviously go back to Monterey peninsula as well days and bought shows early on when that agency, st- yeah, not the agency was long going before either of us were born, but my career was looking at their roster. When they had the Horde Tour and all of the great different acts and Aerosmith and, you know, it's just amazing like days. Like they were the biggest indie, man. It was incredible. And to watch that happen and then turn into what it is and see how that that's developed is an amazing thing. But the team they've built, I mean, the vibe of BMW just screams. The coolest of shit is a paradigm. And the people that are there are influencers, and it's a neat thing. I mean, whether you're talking to Brandon Frankel, or you're talking to Tom Windish, or you're talking to Aaron Pincus, or I'm talking to you, or Joe Tanian, or JL, it doesn't matter. There is a vibe of, we're doing things that we think are cool, personally, that we think the world should know about. And it relevant in the music that you bring to everyone else you can see it and you can see the passion when you get the phone calls it's like we believe in this act not we're just pushing this through get this off my
0: desk i've never gotten that phone call from anyone <laughs> at Paradise. no one is trying to be like anyone else i think that's the biggest piece you know we all operate in a similar manner that we're all inspired music lovers and I think there's a reason that we do what we do. We, we want to see our artists succeed, but we also are rooted in a love of music. And hopefully everyone feels that way. Some might not. Some might feel it's a business, but we're not trying to be like anybody else. I know that we talk about some things internally that are not meant for the outside world, but I think it's no secret that we really believe in our artists and we are the number one developers. We take an artist from the beginning and let it see and grow to its fullest potential.
1: Yeah, well, I think we've done enough on Paradigm. Let's talk about your vision for a second and where it's going. We see each other a couple times a year, whether it's a conference, or we bump into each other in another office in a different part of the country, but it's a multiple time a year thing and you're constantly on the road, I'm constantly on the road, and we overlap a lot, but you don't rest at home, you're always out there. And if, you, if you're on Facebook like if and you're friends with you, you can see that you're not home a lot. You are covering shows. You're in the middle Did of it. Did you talk
0: to my wife before this interview?
1: <laughs> no, but I, I, I know Jewish guilt. <laughs> sure. So it doesn't just happen sitting in a room listening to a demo.
0: Yeah, so I will say I've attempted to cut down on travel a little bit and, and I'm sure that you understand, but.
1: That happens when you're a father, you want to see those kids.
0: Right, right. I, I know that I did not have children to have them and not hang out with them. And especially now, and you know, as kids get older, it has much more of an impact uh, if you're away. And no one dislikes the 3 a.m. phone call more than me, although I'm sure you don't like it either. My wife's probably a, a close second, but. I want people to understand why they're doing what they're doing. I want them to know that there's a plan in place.
1: So that's something you encourage your artists at any point, even if it's 3 a.m., they can call you and you why the fuck they're in the middle of a one-lane highway? No,
0: then- I'm hoping that the 3 a.m. phone calls have purpose, and often they're just text messages. And nine out of ten times, they're Positive. It's a good thing. It's a drunk phone call. It's a happy phone call. One of the things that I ask of my artists when we agree to work together is don't bubble things up. Tell me there's a problem. Tell me you're not happy, but do it in a respectful manner. I'm going to treat you with respect. You treat me with respect. Give me the opportunity to fix whatever it is that's a problem, or let's talk about it. And if I'm not able to fix those problems, and you don't feel that this relationship is working for you, then the writing should be on the wall. I, we work in a fascinating industry in the sense that there are no contracts. It's a handshake. Like we said before, it's You're a talking hug. talking about the artist. With no the artist, yeah. It's a hug. And that is an extremely high level of trust.
1: Okay. Now, I think we're in an interesting industry. You talked about the contracts. And I find the contracts fascinating. Even though when I do a band and I buy a show from you, I get a contract. Contract doesn't guarantee the next play. The only way that we're going to continue to do business together is if it was a good experience. So it's the same thing. There's no relationship contract either. It's a personal guarantee or hope that you're going to be satisfied with the business, that of course you would come back. And that's, I think, what our industry is based on. So I think you're right. There is no real contract because if I don't pay your band the $2,000 that I owe them, You're probably not going to sue me. You're just going to make sure your agency knows that I didn't pay you the $2,000 I promised to pay you. Because it's not worth
0: the legal. So going back to the relationship aspect of this industry, I work with you for a reason. When my artists come to your town or any of the places you work in, I trust you. That's really what it comes down to. I know that that you are going to put my artists in the best of situations. They will more than likely have a great time. That is one of the biggest pieces. We, you know, we try when we are putting a plan together to put our artists with those people who are going to help us achieve our goals. And so... So the question we get a
1: lot, especially in the viewer mail, is how do you become that promoter? How do you become that agent? And I think this is a great topic to bring up with you while I have you. I think Scott Leslie has become my example of the promoter you want to be. That's never the carrot of... If I do this, you're going to have to do that for me. I'll buy this show, but you're going to have to. It's kind of implied that if I do a good job, I want more business. But you never say, or you never hold the carrot. You have to give me all these other things if I do that. It's like, I'm going to kick ass and be the best for you and not hold other things of your head. And then you're gonna give me more business because I'm awesome to deal with.
0: So Scott Leslie is a very close friend of mine. Also happens to be a manager of mine and somebody that I trust and uh, value his friendship. He conducts his business in a way that I think a lot of us want to emulate. He's well respected. He's very well liked, but he puts his foot down when he believes in something. He's not a pushover. He'll you know some people don't like just not hearing the word yes from somebody. But overall, if if I believe in something, he's gonna work with me, um, but he's also gonna tell me like, Jay, I, I don't think your band's gonna be happy if you do this. Like if you really need this, I'll do it, but I'm letting you know your band will not be happy. And then I'm not gonna do it because I trust him.
1: Let me ask you one thing before we close. If somebody wants to get you on the phone and start a relationship with you, somebody that's new in the business that doesn't know how to do that, what's the best way to break the ice to have a conversation with you? Is it an email? Is it a phone call? Is it showing up in the office? Like, what's the best possible way for someone that doesn't, and I'm not saying that someone that's doing a thousand shows a year that just doesn't know you yet, someone that, like, legitimately is just starting out, what's the best way to crack an agent or, in particular, you?
0: So, I don't necessarily want to start the answer In a negative way, but I know from my experience that nobody was going to stop me from doing something that I wanted to do. I got it in my head when I worked at Monterey Peninsula Artists that I was going to be an agent. And there was no such thing as the word no. If I was asked for something, I did it. If somebody asked me a question, I didn't know the answer. I said, one second, I got the answer. I got it back to them really fast in the manner that they want. Everybody's different in the manner they needed that information. Delivered. And I thought about myself. I didn't think about what somebody else was doing, what somebody else was achieving. You know, it would be so easy for me now to get hung up on the achievements of my peers. But I've always just been proud of that and just focused on myself. And now I often feel like... You know when I talk to some people, or I, you know, I'll interview some people. There's this almost th- this sense that things should be handed to them, like they've got into this place. Entitlement. So, yeah, in a sense, just the sense that like you know you haven't made it until you've made. You kind of get what I'm saying, like.
1: No, I get that because the first year of my business, I made ten thousand dollars, and people think that was shit. And I, th- I'm proud of that ten thousand dollars because I fucking scratched. And clawed to make that ten thousand dollars absolutely i made money my first year as a promoter and if you ask most promoters most people can't say they did that i'm fucking proud i of know that $10, that's, $10, that's awesome
0: i know what it's taken for me to get to where i am and the level of sacrifice the reality is it's really not an easy industry to get your foot in the door you can be an intern at a lot of different places but to take that next step to show that you are i don't want to say worthy worthy is the wrong word but to say that you've earned the ability to then become part of an organization. It's not the easiest thing. I know for me, I had to move 3,000 miles away to do it. And I just want to know that the person's hungry and they're excited and they really feel like the opportunity is something that they can't let go.
1: Awesome, dude. Hey, I want to thank you so much for taking your time and being with us. I think we covered a lot of ground and it was all great Thank you so much, Jason.
0: Absolutely.
1: Coverman is one of the most liked agents in the game, bar none. I triple dog dare you not to like him. It's pretty much impossible. Such a great guy on a great run right now. Love, Jason.
3: This is Phil Rodriguez from Move Concerts, and you're listening to Promoter
0: 101.
2: Celebrating birthdays this week of September 25th to October
1: 1st, 2017. Monday, 9.25, The Long Center's Corey Baker and promoter of Las Vegas, Brian Saliba.
2: On Tuesday, we're wishing a happy birthday to Ken Deans, Mike Elko, Scott Gelman,
1: Jen Gillette, and Red Light's Nick Babetsky. Wednesday, Ben Baruch, Sloan Scott, Rachel Adams, and Stan Levenstone from Concerts East. On
2: Thursday, a happy birthday to Mac Presents, Marcy Allen. Dan Jones, WME's Henry Glasscock, a.k.a. the Crystal Pistol, Ken Tomczak, Doc
1: Buzz Reefman, Chris Cobb, and WME's Abby Wells. Gotta love the Crystal Pistol, buddy. Happy birthday. Hey, on Friday, it's a big 50th birthday to Alan Young. Shout out to Mr. Miami, Chris Miller, Miss Christofferson, Lisa Christofferson, Razor and Ties Dan Hoffman, Quinn Donahue, and Jay Fry.
2: On Saturday, we're wishing a happy birthday to Atomics' Troy Layton, s
1: Mike Luganbill, and Steve Larian. Sunday, the mastermind of insurance, Mr. Peter Temkins, and the agent to the stars, Sarah Vale. Everybody,
2: we're wishing you a happy birthday from everyone at the gang at Promoter 101. Especially to the crystal pistol, Henry Glasscock. You got three, now four,
1: birthday wishes, Henry. You should absolutely feel loved. Gotta love Henry. If you don't know Henry, you gotta get to meet him. And if you know him, you obviously love him. He's the pistol. Have him play some banjo in his office one day.
2: Tim Borer from UTA on Promoter 101.
1: If you want to reach out to us, you can always send us an email to Steiny at Promoter101.net. We'll get back to you. We promise. On our next show, we have the coolest of the
2: cool AGI's Nick Storch talking about everything from the moment Ghost is having to King Diamond. And if that wasn't enough, we also have Sean Healy Presents Founder and Namesake talking about promoting shows from Phoenix to Seattle.
1: Also, I want to take a quick moment to talk about some of the industry ego that we've been seeing as of late. The hubris is amazing. Saying that is one of the people that has probably has one of the most healthy egos in the business anyway. I think it's time to realize that we all know that people are coming to see the acts, not because I'm the promoter or you happen to be the agent or the manager or what have you, Luke, have you been feeling the ego coming on stronger and stronger as of late? You know, I'll say this is I
2: constantly remind myself because this is such an insular business, so small. And when you're in the middle of this business, everything seems so important and self-important. And at the end of the day, the things that drive this business are the artists that we work with and for. So never taking that in for granted and always taking that into account. I don't really get the sense of it around that, or I'm quick to remind people that no one really fucking cares who you are. It's really about the people that you're working with, and we're lucky and blessed enough to work with some of these people. So the artist is always at the center of it. you got to check your ego at the door.
1: Really seems like a moment that's uh, long overdue. Everybody remember, it's about the artist and about the fan experience. It's not about us. Wishing you only sold-out shows for the weeks to come. Cheers.
4: Hey, this is David Britz from Works Entertainment, and you are listening to Promoter 101.